Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show 126. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Yes, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Another week, another week marching on of this fantastic podcast. Mind you, it seems to be flying over. Do you know what I mean? 120, show 126 there now, and it wasn't that long ago when show 100 celebrating that. Give you a little heads up what's coming in to today's show. We have an editorial by myself, which is really a mixture of all sorts. Tell you what's going on in the next couple of weeks with shows, and I'll tell you what's happening in the outside world. I want you to kind of follow me on Twitter, because I'm dropping loads of little things in there, bits of news and everything like that. But if you don't follow Twitter, then I'll tell you in the editorial as well. We have Main Fiction comes from Karen Joy Fowler with a great story called Always, narrated by Amy H. Sturgis. And we have fantastic film talk by Rob Barnett. So we'll jump straight into the editorial. And the editorial is really just to give you a kind of little heads up what's happening and how we're going to kind of manage for the next couple of shows. Next week, there's going to be the show, which will be, the, you know, the kind of the end of the show, you know, the end of the month, sorry, main fiction with the artwork show. That's going to be Tanith Lee, who's going to be on that show. Then we have Ken McLeod with a little bit of flash fiction there. But the week after, which is normally the, the first week of the month, which is the old school, new school, or then and now, as it's called now, <laughs> quickly told you, you made a mistake, <laughs> then and now, that isn't going to, I'm not going to put a show out that week, because just before, or the weekend before, is EasterCon, and it's EasterCon over in the UK, Odyssey it's called, it starts on Friday the 2nd of April, goes through the Saturday, the Sunday, and the Monday, I think, as well. That's when the Hugo announcements are going to be, the nominations are going to be kind of made. So, really, I'm going to be doing like a few little kind of shows and put them on this main feed show. The main one is on Sunday the 4th. It's UK time, which is 10 o'clock at night. That's when, between 10 and 11, is when EasterCon announces the nominees for the Hugo Awards. Now, I'm going to have on the show Amy H. Sturgis, Larry Santuro, Grant Stone, and reporting live from the event is Cheryl Morgan. And I wanted to get Matt Sanborn-Smith on as well, but Matt's been called up there. He's got to work over the Easter holidays. 
So that's we're going to put out a show on a Sunday night announcing the kind of the nominees for the Hugo Awards. And that one, honestly, I hope you can get a chance to listen to it because that one, either way, it'll be kind of a rocky, emotional show, you know. So hopefully you can come back and listen to that. On that'll be Sunday the fourth. But we're going to do one on Sunday the second. Cheryl's going to phone in. And we're going to do a little show there. So all that weekend, there's going to be lots of things going into the feed regarding this Odyssey, this Easter Con 2010. And it'll just give me, like, all too crammed up. And I thought, well, why don't we just miss old school news? I'll still mention somewhere along the time what who the winner was for old school news school. But then we'll get back into normal running on the, I think it's the 14th of April, and that'll be the kind of, you know, the 15 interrogation questions, which leads me on to the new, well, not the new bit of news, but you really need to be following me on Twitter, and this is the kind of, the the big one, you know, if you'll be kind enough, if you wanted to, subscribe to the Sanatorium show, because lately I'm getting some massive, massive interviewing, and, you know, it's all to do with the kind of the 15 questions but then there's lots of like what I was mentioning once or twice before this kind of added extra that I'm just kind of chatting about afterwards you know like I did with Gene Wolfe well lined up and actually lined up when this when you if, if you listen to this show and the first day it comes out on Wednesday which is Wednesday I've got my calendar in front of us that's how I've got my dates because <laughs> I'll be shopping Wednesday the 24th of March on uh interviewing Robert Silverberg <laughs> The man himself, you know, the legend. And then, a couple of hours later, Ray Bradbury. <laughs> it, it doesn't get any better than that. And a big thank you to Larry Santuru for organising Ray Bradbury. You know, and that's the one, if you if you were on the Sanatorium show feed, you'll be able to listen to me and Larry just chat generally about Ray's health, you know, about... me doing this interview you know like approaching him you know the, the guy the legend's bloody 90 year old do you know what i mean he's uh he's not fit as a fiddle anymore for one for a better description so i'm asking larry lots of questions like that on the sanatorium feed and like i say i've just put in there an interview with harry turtledove i've got about an hour and a half of interview with china mieville that's going in there which is lovely because you know, you get those 15 questions, and that's a great little experiment, you know, to hear what these all these authors say with them questions. But then you kind of, you get them to open up a little bit, and, you know, I was talking to China about his mom and everything like that. You know, he wrote the book for his mom, City in the City. Unfortunately, she passed away before he could complete the book, and we go into all of that, you know, and it's a lovely, honestly, I'm proud of bits of this interview. So, you know, if there's a chance you wanted to sign up for, you know, and, Trust us when I say it does support the show, do you know what I mean? It's like, it keeps it going. That would be a great thing, you know, and hopefully I'm trying to get as much kind of rich content in there as possible. Just having a quick look there now, what's in the sanatorium feed? Like I say, I always wanted to get Larry on and do a few shows, and I'm just calling them Larry and me, number one, and that's that's in there, that was the last one. And that, like I say, that's just me and Larry talking about Ray Bradbury. Then I've got the, the Harry Turtle Dove interviews in there. Then we have, then there's an interview in there that I did with Alistair Reynolds. That's there. Then we have a Cheryl Morgan one where we're just kind of chatting about the kind of Hugo Awards and, and doing this kind of live show. Then I've got one with Amy H. Sturgis, just like you say, chatting on. I'm going to put in that China Mayville one. I've just sent off a load of requests for interviews. Two that I've just getting back saying yes is Jack McDivitt and Robert G. Sawyer. So those will be going in there as well. 
I'm trying to track down as well, just if anyone's interested. Samuel Ardellini. Michael Moorcock said yes for a one. And I'm... Fingers crossed, you know, there's a deep breath there. I'm close, but I cannot say yes or no yet with this one. But I'm trying to get Ursula Kayla Gwynn to do an interview as well. I'm going to drop Tanith Lee an email, which would hopefully that would be very nice if I can get Tanith Lee in there. I tried to get Dan Simmons, but he's just so busy at the minute. He's got this novel to complete. And then he says, first holiday in 20 years he's going to take off. Like I say, and I've sent out honestly loads more. Do you know what I mean? So, like you say, Neil Stevenson, Bruce Sterling, whether they come back and say yes, but things will be going in that private feed. So, hopefully, if you want to, something that entices in, you know, drop us a line and we'll we'll sort it out or just sign your life away. So, it's time now for this month's film talk with Rod Barnett. Rod, what's going on, sir? Hello, everybody. As there's nothing in the theaters right now that's really piquing my interest, I thought I'd step back a few decades into the past and talk about a movie that you may have never heard of that just might interest you. I must warn you, though, this one's R-rated, and calling it sleazy would be a kind, kind description. The film I want to talk to you about is from 1973, and don't laugh too hard yet. It's called Invasion of the Bee-Girls. This is a very interesting film and shows the wisdom of keeping tongue firmly in cheek. Let's start with a plot synopsis. State Department investigator Neil Agar is sent to Peckham, California to investigate a mysterious death. Peckham is the home of a small government lab and one of their scientists has turned up dead of cardiac arrest even though he had no previous record of any kind of heart trouble. Things only look stranger when the coroner lists the cause of death as sexual exhaustion. Agar quickly discovers that there seems to be a rash of these types of deaths in the town, and once another scientist snuffs it, he starts looking for unusual possibilities. Enlisting the aid of a pretty lab assistant named Julie, it isn't long before he's taking a closer look at entomologist Dr. Susan Harris. The supposedly sexually frigid Dr. Harris always seems to be wearing sunglasses, and her aloof manner makes Agar suspicious. In a leap of logic that could only be played out with everyone in on the joke, Agar surmises that some type of genetic insect crossbreeding experiment is involved and comes across proof just as Julie is about to become part of the town's deadly female breed. Friends, here's a film that knows it's dealing with a preposterous idea and just plays it straight, hoping the audience is savvy enough to get the joke and play along. Scripted by novelist-turned-filmmaker Nicholas Meyer, this film shows just how clever the man could be. Long before he directed Time After Time, The Day After, or crafted the two best Star Trek motion pictures, he concocted this bizarre bit of sexual political entertainment masked as a sleazy drive-in chuckle fest. Pure, smutty fun from beginning to end, Invasion of the Bee-Girls revels in nudity, softcore sex, gratuitous lesbianism, and unapologetically chauvinistic behavior the likes of which we are likely never to see in film again. In Peckham, California, every man, whether married or not, is looking to score with whoever he can, and it seems that every woman in town was a sexual predator long before they started getting their bee on. Gloriously nasty, with nearly no redeeming social values, Bee Girls is a wonderful early 70s time capsule. 
Where else are you going to see an amazingly ugly man yell out in public that he will not abstain from sex just because he might die? And that is just one of the absolutely priceless scenes in this film. Really, this movie has become my second favorite sci-fi sex film of all time, right behind Life Force and uh, right above Barbarella, really. Indeed, there are only a couple of ladies in this movie that don't get naked at some point in the proceedings, but the real draw for fans of beautiful women has to be Anitra Ford. Anitra Ford? She's the main bad-slash-B-girl playing Dr. Susan Harris. The former Price is Right model only made four theatrical films, but my lust for her was kindled when I saw her as the evil Amazonian princess in the original Wonder Woman TV movie. Kathy Lee Crosby, who played Wonder Woman in that film, had nothing on Miss Ford, and at my young age, I could barely understand the strange emotions she sent running through my curious body. Anitra has an extended nude scene here that shows us just what was lurking beneath that game show smile that must have driven Bob Barker completely mad. Add to that her completely unnecessary lesbian kiss later on and you have 70s sexploitation heaven. Another big plus is the casting of William Smith as the heroic good guy. Smith will be familiar to fans of biker movies from the 70s and 60s or anyone who's ever seen the Clint Eastwood comedy any which way you can. Smith was almost always cast as a heavy in film, and seeing him get the rare chance to be more than that here is a pleasure. He's quite good and lends some real believability to the strange goings-on, not to mention the fistfights. Invasion of the B-Girls is a sexploitation film in which the women are evil and predatory, are endowed with the power to literally love men to death, but at the same time, it's a movie which could equally be seen as an insanely paranoid satire about the rise of the 1970s women's movement or a similarly crazed satire aimed against the paranoia with which the movement was greeted by the traditional male-dominated establishment. Take your pick. I suspect it will boil down to a kind of eye of the beholder thing, which may be for the best. Of course, the film is far from perfect, and it does have its share of detriments. The plot is moved along more by chance and wild guesswork than anything else, and sloppier moments in the story are glossed over by some obvious post-production dubbing. Some of the acting is less than convincing, but on the whole, I find that just adds to the fun in a very odd way. This is a fun movie for anyone with a love of campy science fiction or maybe just dirty minds. Of course, it is one that you're going to want to keep the kids away from. R-rated hardly begins to cover it. There you go. Rod, thank you so much for that. Next we have Main Fiction by Karen Joy Fowler. We played one of Karen Joy Fowler's stories once before. This one is called Always. Karen Joy Fowler was born in 1950, Bloomington, Indiana, American author of science fiction, fantasy and literary fiction. It's said that her work often centres on 19th century and the lives of women and alienation. Best known, and the book that came out in 2007, the... Jane Austen Book Club, and that was actually recently made into a movie as well. Karen Joy Fowler's first short stories came out in 1985. Praxis, Recalling Cinderella, The Polar Street Study, Lake of Wars Full of Artificial Things, and The War of the Roses. Her last one was The Last Wonders in 2007. This story came out in 2007 as well. It was first published by Sheila Williams in Asimov Science Fiction in the April-May 2007 edition. It was then picked up for Science Fiction, The Best of the Year, 2008, 
edited by Rich Horton. Then it was picked up for Year's Best SF 13 by edited by David G. Hartwell, Catherine Kramer. Then it was picked up by Ellen Datlow in April 2009, the Nebula Awards Showcase 2009, the year's best science fiction and fantasy. This story has some pedigree, do you know what I mean? And it's narrated by Amy H. Sturgis, which is just the icing on the cake there for narrations. Thank you, Amy. So the Starship Sova and her oral delight is very proud to present. Always by Karen Joy Fowler. How I got here. I was 17 years old when I heard the good news from Wilt Loomis, who had it straight from Brother Porter himself. Wilt was so excited. He was ready to drive to the city of Always that very night. Back then, I just wanted to be anywhere Wilt was. So, we packed up. Always had two openings, and these were going for 5000 apiece. But Wilt had already talked to Brother Porter, who said... Seeing as it was Wilt, who was good with cars, he'd take 2500 down and give us another three years to come up with the other 25 and let that money cover us both. You average that 5000 Wilt told me, over the infinite length of your life, and it worked out to almost nothing a year. Not exactly nothing, but as close to nothing as you could get without getting to nothing. It was too good a deal to pass up. They were practically paying us. My stepfather was drinking again, and it looked less and less like I was going to graduate high school. Mother was just as glad to have me out of the house in harm's way. She did give me some advice. You can always tell a cult from a religion, she said, because a cult is just a set of rules that let certain men get laid. And then she told me not to get pregnant which I could have taken as a shot across the bow, her new way of saying her life would have been so much better without me. But I chose not to. Already I was taking the long view. The city of Always was a lively place then. This was back in 1938. Part commune and part roadside attraction. Set down in the Santa Cruz Mountains with the redwoods all around. It used to rain all winter and be damp all summer, too. Slug weather for those big yellow slugs you never saw anywhere but Santa Cruz. Out in the woods, it smelled like bay leaves. The old Santa Cruz highway snaked through, and the two blocks right on the road were the part open to the public. People would stop there for a soda. Brother Porter used to brag that he'd invented Hawaiian punch, though the recipe had been stolen by some gang in Fresno who took the credit for it, and to look us over, whisper about us on their way to the beach. We offered penny peep shows for the adults, because Brother Porter said you ought to know what sin was before you abjured it, and a row of wooden Santa Claus statues for the kids. In our heyday, we had 14 gas pumps to take care of all the gawkers. Brother Porter founded Always in the early 20s, and most of the other residents were already old when I arrived. That made sense, I guess, that they'd be the ones to feel the urgency, but I didn't expect it, and I wasn't pleased. Wilt was 25 when we first went to Always. Of course, that too seemed old to me then. The bed I got had just been vacated by a 32-year-old woman named Maddie Beckinger. Maddie was real pretty. 
She just filed a suit against Brother Porter, alleging that he'd promised to star her in a movie called The Perfect Woman. And when it opened, she was supposed to fly to Rome in a replica of the Spirit of St. Louis. Only this plane would be called The Spirit of Love. She said in her suit that she'd always been more interested in being a movie star than in living forever. Who, she asked, was more immortal than Marlena Dietrich? Brother Porter hated it when we got dragged into the courts, but, as I was to learn, it did keep happening. Lawyers are forever, Brother Porter used to say. He'd gotten as far as building a soundstage for the movie, which he hoped he might be able to rent out from time to time, and Smitty Leroy and the Watsonville Wranglers recorded there, but mainly we used it as a dormitory. Maddie's case went on for two whole years. During this time, she came by occasionally to pick up her mail and tell us all she'd never seen such a collection of suckers as we were. Then one day, we heard she'd been picked up in Nevada for passing bad checks, which turned out not to be her first offense. So off she went to the San Quentin instead of to Rome. It seemed like a parable to me. But Brother Porter wasn't the sort who resorted to parables. Lots of the residents had come in twos, like Wilt and me, like animals to the ark, only to learn that there was a men's dormitory and a women's, with Brother Porter living up the hill in his own big house all by himself, and closer to the women's dorm than to the men's. Brother Porter told us right after we got there, though not a second before. That even the married couples weren't to sleep together. There you go, mother. Was my first thought. Not a cult. Only later it was clarified to me that I would be having sex with Brother Porter, and so not a religion after all. Frankie Fry and Eleanor Pilser were the ones who told me. I'd been there just about a week, and then one morning, while we were straightening up our cots and brushing our teeth and whatnot. They just came right out with it. At dinner the night before, there'd been a card by my plate, the Queen of Hearts, which was Brother Porter's signal. Only I didn't know that, so I didn't go. Frankie Fry, yes, that Frankie Fry. I'll get to all that. Had the cot on one side of me, and Eleanor the cot on the other. The dormitory was as dim in the morning as at night, on account of also being a soundstage and having no windows. There was just one light dangling from the ceiling, with a chain that didn't reach down far enough, so about a foot of string had to be added to it. The thing the men don't get, Frankie said to me, snapping her pillowcase smooth. The thing the men mustn't get, Eleanor added on, is that sleeping with Brother Porter is no hardship, said Frankie. Frankie was thirty-five then, and the postmistress. Eleanor was in her early forties and had come to always with her husband Raj. I can't tell you how old Brother Porter was because he always said he wouldn't give an irrelevant number the power of being spoken out loud. He was a fine-looking man, though, a man in his prime. Wilt and I had done nothing but dry runs so far, and he'd brought me to always and paid my way into eternity with certain expectations. He was a fine-looking man too, and I won't say I wasn't disappointed. Just that I took the news better than he did. I can't lie to you," 
He told me in those few days after he learned he wouldn't be having sex, but before he learned that I would be. This is not the way I pictured it. I sort of thought with all that extra time, I'd get to be with more people, not less. And when he did hear about me and Brother Porter, he pointed out that the rest of the world only had to be faithful until death did them part. I don't care how good he is, Wilt said. You won't want to be with him and no one else forever. Which I suspected he would turn out to be right about, and he was. But in those early days, Brother Porter could make my pulse dance like a snake in a basket. In those early days, Brother Porter never failed to bring the goods. We had a lot of tourists back then, especially in the summer. They would sidle up to us in their beach gear, ten-cent barbecue in one hand and skepticism in the other, to ask how we could really be sure Brother Porter made us immortal. At first I tried to explain that it took two things to be immortal. It took Brother Porter, and it took faith in Brother Porter. If I started asking the question, then I was already missing one of the two things it took. But this in no way ended the matter. You think about hearing the same question a couple hundred times, and then add to that the knowledge that you'll be hearing it forever, because the way some people see it, you could be 205 and then suddenly die when you're 206. The world is full of people who couldn't be convinced of cold in a snowstorm. I was made the always zookeeper. We had a petting zoo, three goats, one llama, a parrot named Parody, a dog named Chowder, and a monkey named Monkey Shines. But Monkey Shines bit and couldn't be let loose among the tourists, no matter how much simple pleasure it would have given me to do so. We immortals didn't leave always much. We didn't have to. We grew our own food, had our own laundry, tailor, barber, though the lousy haircuts figured prominently in Maddie's suit, and someone to fix our shoes. At first, Brother Porter discouraged field trips, and then later we just found we had less and less in common with people who were going to die. When I complained about how old everyone else it always was, Wilt pointed out that I was actually closer in age to some 70-year-old who, like me, was going to live forever, than to some 18-year-old with only 50 or so years left. Wilt was as good with numbers as he was with cars, and he was as right about that as everything else. Though some might go, and others with 5,000 to slap down might arrive, we were a tight community then, and I felt as comfortable in all ways as I'd felt anywhere. The Starks were the first I ever saw leave. They were a married couple in their mid-forties, Evelyn Barton and Harry Capps were in their forties, too. Raj and Eleanor, as I've said. Frankie, a bit younger. The rest, and there were about thirty of us all told, were too old to guess at, in my opinion. The Starks had managed our radio station, KFQU, which looks nasty but was really just sequential, until the FRC shut us down, claiming we deviated from our frequency. No one outside always wanted to hear Brother Porter sermonizing because no one outside always thought life was long enough. The Starks quit on eternity when Brother Porter took their silver packard and crashed it on the fish hook turned just outside Los Gatos. Bill Starks loved that packard, and even though Brother Porter walked away with hardly a scratch, 
Something about the accident made Bill lose his faith. For someone with all the time in the world, he told us while he waited for his wife to fetch her things, Brother Porter surely does drive fast. In his defense, Brother Porter did tell the police he wasn't speeding, and he stuck to that. He was just in the wrong lane, he said, for the direction in which he was driving. He later said that the Starks hadn't quit over the crash after all. They'd been planted as fifth columnists in all ways, and left because we were all such patriots they saw there was no point to it. Or else they were about to be exposed. I forget which. The next to go were Joseph Fitton and Cleveland March. The men just woke up one morning to find Joe and Cleveland's cot stripped bare and Cleveland's cactus missing from the windowsill without a word said. But Wilt told me they'd been caught doing something they didn't think was sex, but Brother Porter did. I couldn't see leaving myself. The thing I'd already learned was that when you remove death from your life, you change everything that's left. Take the petting zoo. Parrots are pretty long-lived compared to dogs and goats, but even they die. I'd been there less than two years when Chowder, our little foxhound, had to be put down because his kidneys failed. He wasn't the first dog I'd ever lost. He was just the first I'd lost since I wasn't dying myself. I saw my life stretching forward, all counted out in dead dogs, and I saw I couldn't manage that. I saw that my pets from now on would have to be turtles or trees or nothing. Turtles and trees don't engage the way dogs do, but you can only have your heart broken so many times until it just won't mend again. I sat with Chowder and pulled him into my lap as he died, and I was crying so hard for all the Chowderless years ahead that I understood then and there that immortality was going to bring a certain coldness. A remoteness into my life. I hadn't expected that, but I didn't see a way out of it. Here's another thing that changes: your investment strategies. As Wilt would say, we were all about T bills now. Wilt said that often. I got real tired of Wilt saying that. How it went on. Time passed, and I felt pretty good about my situation. No one had always died, and this was a powerful persuasion. Given how very old some of them were, not that I needed persuading. I wasn't the youngest woman any more. That was Kitty Strauss, and I didn't get the Queen of Hearts so often. But that was okay with me. Only the parrot was left from the petting zoo, so you couldn't really call it a zoo now. And I didn't see as much of the tourists, and that was okay with me too. Three years in. Wilt had decided he'd gone for immortality prematurely. It had occurred to him that the older residents lived their full lives first, and only arrived in all ways when they were tired of the flesh. Not that he wanted to wait as long as some. Winifred spent every meal detailing the sufferings her arthritis caused her, as if we women weren't already listening to her toss and turn and hack and snore all night long. Also, he hadn't managed to scrape up the second twenty-five hundred dollars we owed, and it wasn't likely he would, since Brother Porter collected all our paychecks as a matter of course. So, Wilt told me that he wouldn't ante up again for eternity, 
until he'd slept with at least twenty-five women. But no sooner did he move into San Jose than he was on his way to the Pacific Theater as a mechanic on the USS Aquarius. For a while, I got postcards from the Gilberts, Marshalls, Marianas, and Carolines. It would have been a real good time for Wilt to be immortal, but if he was thinking that too, he never said it. In fact, the postcards didn't say much of anything. Maybe this was Navy policy, or maybe Wilt remembered that Brother Porter vetted all our mail first. Whichever, Brother Porter handed Wilt's postcards to me without comment. But he read Mother's letters aloud in the dining hall after dinner, especially if someone was in the hospital and not expected to recover, or was cheating on her husband or her ration card. I listened just like everyone else, only mildly interested, as if these weren't mostly people I'd once known. Brother Porter said Mother's letters were almost as good as the Captain Midnight radio show, which I guess meant that up in the big house... He had a radio and listened to it. Lots of mother's friends were being neglected by their children. You might say this was a theme. No one ever needed a secret decoder ring to figure mother out. It didn't seem to me that the war lasted all that long, though Wilt felt otherwise. When he got back, I'd meet him from time to time in San Jose and would have a drink. The city of always was dry, except for once when a bunch of reporters in the Fill Your Hole Club rented out our dining space, invited us to join them, and spiked the punch so as to get a story from it. It ended in a lot of singing, and Winifred Allington fell off Brother Porter's porch, and Jeb Porter, Brother Porter's teenage son, punched out Harry Caps as a refutation of positive thinking. But the reporters had left by then, so they missed it all. Anyway, Brother Porter never explicitly made abstention a condition, and I never asked him about it in case he would. I still got my age checked whenever we went to a bar, so that was good. It renewed my faith every time it happened. Not that my faith needed renewing. Now that Wilt was dying again, our interests had diverged. He was caught up in politics, local corruptions, national scandals. He read the newspapers. He belonged to the auto mechanics union, and he told me he didn't care that the war had ended so much as I might think. The dead were still dead, and he'd seen way too many of them. He said that war served the purposes of corporations and politicians so exactly that there would always be another one, and then another, until the day some president or prime minister figured out how to declare a war that lasted forever. He said he hoped he'd die before that day came. I wonder sometimes if that worked out for him. Once, while he was still at Always, Wilt took me to the ocean so that we could stand on the edge and imagine eternity. Now, when Wilt talked politics, I'd fill my ears with the sound of the ocean instead. Corporate puppet masters and congressional witch hunts and union payola, they all drowned together in the pounding of the sea. Still, I went out with Wilt every time he asked. Mostly this was gratitude, because he'd bought me eternity. Love had gone the way of the petting zoo for me. Sex was a good thing, and there were plenty of times I couldn't sleep for wanting it, but even if sleeping with Wilt wouldn't have cost my life, I wouldn't have. There was a match found for me at last. I fell in love with a shrub oak. I read once in high school in a book about Thoreau, 
who died more than a hundred years ago and left that shrub oak a grieving widow. When I first came to Always, there were six Earl Stanley Gardner mysteries in the women's dormitory that used to belong to Maddie. I read them all, several times, but I wasn't reading anymore, and certainly not murder mysteries. I'd even stopped liking music. I'd always supposed that art was about beauty and that beauty was forever. Now I saw that music was all about time. You take a photograph and it's all about that moment and how that moment will never come again. You go into a library and every book on the shelves is all about death, even the ones pretending to be about birth or rebirth or resurrection or reincarnation. Only the natural world is rendered eternal. Always was surrounded by the Santa Cruz Mountains, which meant tree trunks across streams, ghostly bear prints deep inside the forest, wild berries, tumbles of rocks, mosses, earthquakes, and storms. Out behind the post office was a glade where Brother Porter gave his sermons, had sex, and renewed our lifespans. It was one of those rings of redwoods made when the primary tree in the center dies. Brother Porter had us brick a wall in a half-circle behind the trees, so it would be more church-like, and the trees grew straight as candles. You could follow along their trunks all the way to the stars. The first time Brother Porter took me there, and I lay smelling the loam and the bay, and also Brother Porter, and looking up, I thought to myself that no matter how long I lived, this place would always be beautiful to me. I talked less and less. At first, my brain tried to make up the lost, dredging up random flashes from my past, advertising slogans, old songs, glimpses of shoes I'd worn, my mother's jewelry, the taste of an ant I'd once eaten, a dream I'd had in which I was surrounded by food that was bigger than me, bread slices the size of mattresses, which seems like it should have been a good dream, but it wasn't, memories fast and scattershot. It pleased me to think my last experience of mortality would be a toothpaste commercial. Goodbye to all that. Then I smoothed out, and days would go by when it seemed I hardly thought at all. Tree time. So it wasn't just wilt. I was finding it harder to relate to people in general. And no, this is not a complaint. I never minded having so little in common with those outside always, and their revved-up, streaming-by lives. While inside always, I already knew what everyone was going to say. One, Winifred was going to complain about her arthritis. Two, John was going to tell us that we were in for a cold winter. He'd make it sound like he was just reading the signs, like he had all this lore, the fuzzy caterpillars coming early or being especially fuzzy or some such thing. He was going to remind us that he hadn't always lived in California, so he knew what a cold winter really was. He was going to say the Californians didn't know cold weather from their asses. Three, Frankie was going to say it wasn't her job to tape our mail shut for us, and she wasn't doing it anymore. We needed to bring it already taped. Four, Anna was going to complain that her children wouldn't talk to her just because she'd spent their inheritance on immortality that their refusal to be happy for her was evidence that they'd never loved her. Five, Harry was going to tell us to let a smile be our umbrella.
Six, Brother Porter was going to wonder why the arcade wasn't bringing in more money. He was going to add that he wasn't accusing any of us of pocketing, but that it did make you wonder how all those tourists could stop and spend so little money. Seven, Kitty was going to tell us how many boys in the arcade had come on to her that day. Her personal best was seventeen. She would make this sound like a problem. Eight, Harry would tell us to use those lemons and make lemonade. Nine, Vincent was going to say that he thought his watch was fast and make everyone else still wearing a watch tell him what time they had. The fact that the times would vary minutely never ceased to interest him and was good for at least another hour of conversation. Ten, Frankie was going to say that no one ever listened to her. It was a kind of conversation that required nothing in response. On and on it rolled, like the ocean. Wilt always made me laugh, and that never changed either. Only it took me so much longer to get the joke. Sometimes I'd be back at always before I noticed how witty he'd been. What happened next? Here's the part you already know. One day, one spring. One day, when the Canada geese were passing overhead yet again, and we were out at the arcades taking money from tourists, and I was thrilling for the umpteenth time to the sight of the migration, the chevron, the honking, the sense of a wild, wild spirit in the air. Brother Porter took Kitty out to the cathedral ring, and he died there. At first, Kitty thought she'd killed him by making the sex so exciting. Though anyone else would have been tipped off by the frothing and the screaming, the police came and they shermaned their way through always. Eventually, they found a plastic bag of rat poison stuffed inside one of the unused post office boxes, and a half-drunk cup of Hawaiian punch on the mail scale that tested positive for it. Inside always, we all got why it wasn't murder. Frankie Fry reminded us that she had no way of suspecting it would kill him. She was so worked up and righteous, she made the rest of us feel we hadn't ever had the same faith in Brother Porter she'd had, or we would have poisoned him ourselves years ago. But no one outside of Always could see this. Frankie's lawyers refused to plead it out that way. They went with insanity and made all the inner workings of Always part of their case. They dredged up the old string of arsons as if they were relevant, as if they hadn't stopped entirely the day Brother Porter finally threw his son out on his ear. Jeb was a witness for the prosecution, and a more angelic face you never saw. In retrospect, it was a great mistake to have given immortality to a fourteen-year-old boy. When he had it, he was a jerk, and I could plainly see that not having it had only made him an older jerk. Frankie's own lawyers made such a point of her obesity that they reduced her to tears. It was a shameful performance and showed how little they understood us. If Frankie ever wished to lose weight, she had all the time in the world to do so. There was nothing relevant or even interesting in her weight. The difficult issue for the defense was whether Frankie was insane all by herself or along with all the rest of us. Sometimes they seemed to be arguing the one, and sometimes the other. So when they chose not to call me to the stand, I didn't know if this was because I'd make us all look more crazy or less so. Kitty testified nicely. She charmed them all, and the press dubbed her the Queen of Hearts at her own suggestion.
Wilt was able to sell his three years among the immortals to a magazine and recoup every cent of that twenty-five hundred he put up for me. There wasn't much I was happy about right then, but I was happy about that. I didn't even blame him for the way I came off in the article. I expect coquettish was the least I deserved. I'd long ago stopped noticing how I was behaving at any given moment. I would have thought the trial would be just mother's cup of tea, even without me on the witness stand, so I was surprised not to hear from her. It made me stop and think back, try to remember when her last letter had come. Could have been five years, could have been ten, could have been twenty, could have been two. I figured she must be dead, which was bound to happen sooner or later, though I did think she was young to go, but that might only have been because I'd lost track of how old she was. I never heard from her again, so I think I had it right. I wonder if it was the cigarettes. She always said that smoking killed germs. Not one of the immortals left always during the trial. Partly we were in shock and huddled up as a result. Partly there was so much to be done, so much money to be made. The arcade crawled with tourists and reporters, too, looking for a story, but also, as always, trying to make one. Now that Brother Porter is dead, they would ask, exact wording to change, but point always the same. Don't you have some doubts? And if you have some doubts, well, then, isn't the game already over? They were tiresome, but they paid for their Hawaiian punch just like everyone else, and we all knew Brother Porter wouldn't have wanted them kept away. Frankie was let off by reason of insanity. Exactly two days later, Harry Capps walked into breakfast, just when Winifred Allington was telling us how badly she'd slept the night before on account of her arthritis. By the time he ran out of bullets, four more immortals were dead. Harry's defense was no defense. Not one of them ever got a good night's sleep, he said. Someone had to show them what a good night's sleep was. The politicians blamed the overly lenient Frankie Fry verdict for the four new deaths and swore the same mistake would not be made twice. Harry got life. Why I'm Still Here Everyone else either died or left, and now I'm the whole of it. The last of the immortals. City of always, population one. I moved up to the big house, and I'm the postmistress now, along with anything else I care to keep going. I get a salary from the government with benefits, and a pension they'll regret if I live forever. They have a powerful faith I won't. The arcade is closed except for the peep shows, which cost a quarter now and don't need me to do anything to run them but collect the coins after. People don't come through so much since they built the 17, but I still get customers from time to time. They buy a postcard, and they want the always postmark on it. Wilt came to fetch me after the noise died down. I brought you here, he said. Seems like I should take you away. He never did understand why I wouldn't leave. He hadn't lived here long enough to understand it. I tried the easy answer first. I got shot by Harry Capps, I said, right through the heart. Was supposed to die. Didn't. But then I tried again, because that wasn't the real answer, and if I'd ever loved anyone, I'd loved Wilt. Who'll take care of the redwoods if I go? I asked him. Who'll take care of the mountains? 
He still didn't get it, though he said he did. I wouldn't have known how to leave even if I'd wanted to. What I was and what he was, they weren't the same thing at all anymore. There was no way back to what I'd been. The actual living forever part, that was always, always the least of it. Which is the last thing I'm going to say on the subject. There is no question you can ask I haven't already answered and answered and answered again. Time without end. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Karen Joy Fowler's. Karen, thank you so much for that. Try and sneak some more work off you. And Amy H. Sturgis, what a star. Amy's been badgering me to get that story played on the show. She says it's an amazing story, and it certainly is. Amy, thank you so much for that recommendation. That is it. Show 126, put to bed. Like I say, next week is just ploughing on as normal on the 31st. That will be fantastic story, Tanith Lee. And a little flash fiction by Ken McLeod with some amazing artwork. Then we're going to slip in with some EasterCon specials accumulating on Sunday the 4th with our EasterCon Hugo Award nominees special where Amy Grant and Larry Santuro and myself and Cheryl Morgan all try and chat around and tell you who's coming out or who's been nominated for these this year's Hugo Awards. Is it going to be us? <laughs> like I say... That would be great, a show anyway, do you know what I mean? Just because it's, even if we don't make it, do you know what I mean? That's like, you get them kind of highs, you know, and, and lows. You'll, you'll get to listen to them, which is, is great. Don't forget, if you want to have some great shows, listen to some more interviews by some of the leading writers and some of the classic genre writers of our time, pop over the sanatorium feed. And do just drop us an email, say hello. Follow us on Twitter, you get loads of little... Up to the minute news, little bits of buzz news that's, you know, I'm just about to interview Ray Bradbury. Help! So until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a vacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.